Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. President Biden asks, what gives Putin the right? The lead starts right now. Harsh words from President Biden as he punishes Russian President Vladimir Putin with economic sanctions. And Biden warns there's worse to come if Putin takes even more of Ukraine. And a pain in the wallet. Gas prices already soaring. And now the Russia-Ukraine crisis could send even more prices surging. Then the three white men accused of federal hate crimes for chasing down and killing Ahmaud Arbery learned their fate. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We start today with our world lead and President Biden this afternoon announcing a series of new economic sanctions against Russia after what Biden calls Vladimir Putin's flagrant violation of international law. The sanctions target two of Russia's main financial institutions and Russian elites and their family members who are close to the Kremlin. President Biden saying he's also moving to cut Russia's government off from Western financing. All this in response to Putin officially recognizing as independent territories two parts of Ukraine, Luhansk and Donetsk, which make up the Donbass region, and ordering Russian troops into those areas. It is not clear if these new sanctions will deter Putin, of course. A senior administration official told me that today's sanctions were a, quote, wallop, but acknowledged that the Biden administration was holding on to most of its arsenal, given the administration's belief that Russia could still launch a full invasion of the entirety of Ukraine. Earlier today, CNN teams in southern Russia near the border with Ukraine saw large numbers of Russian military vehicles. The NATO secretary general just told reporters that, quote, more and more Russian troops have moved out of their camps in Russia and are in, quote, combat formations and ready to strike. We're going to go live to both Russia and Ukraine in just moments. But first, CNN's Caitlin Collins starts us off from the White House. President Biden announcing a raft of new sanctions as he seeks to punish Russia for what he says is the start of an invasion into Ukraine. This is the beginning of a Russian invasion of Ukraine. The president joining European leaders and condemning Russian President Putin for recognizing two breakaway Ukrainian regions as, quote, independent, defying international law and violating Ukraine's borders. To put it simply, Russia just announced that it is carving out a big chunk of Ukraine. Who in the Lord's name does Putin think gives him the right to declare new so-called countries on territory that belong to his neighbors? Biden says the U.S. will take action against two Russian banks, cut Russia off from sovereign debt financing in the West, and send more U.S. troops into the Baltic states to reinforce NATO allies. Russia will pay an even steeper price if it continues its aggression, including additional sanctions. On Tuesday, Russia's parliament authorized the use of Russian forces outside of Russia at Putin's demand, raising fears that he's planning to conduct a full-scale assault against Ukraine. We still believe that Russia is poised to go much further in launching a massive military attack against Ukraine. Hope I'm wrong about that. Hope we're wrong about that. 
The challenge facing Biden and his European counterparts is whether to unleash the full sanctions now or hold back in case Putin attempts to seize the entire country, possibly killing thousands in the process. And if Russia proceeds, it is Russia and Russia alone that bears the responsibility. The president touting steps taken by other allies, including Germany, halting the certification of a natural gas pipeline linked to Russia, while also warning Americans that energy prices at home could be impacted. Defending freedom will have cost for us as well and here at home. We need to be honest about that. And Jake, in explaining why the White House didn't go further in these sanctions today, a senior official just told reporters that this is only the beginning of the Russian invasion. Therefore, it is only the beginning of their response. Of course, it remains to be seen what Putin does next. But President Biden did leave the door open today to diplomacy, saying that he does still believe a path down that road is possible. And he met with the Ukrainian foreign minister here at the White House in a show of support for Ukraine. As we wait to see if the White House is going to cancel that planned meeting between Secretary of State Blinken and the Russian foreign minister that's supposed to happen on Thursday, Jake. Kaylin Collins at the White House, thanks so much. Let's go to our teams in the region now. CNN's Clarissa Ward is in Kyiv, Ukraine. CNN's Jill Doherty is in Moscow. Uh, and Clarissa, Ukrainian President Zelensky called for strong sanctions against Russia. Is he going to be satisfied with what he just heard from President Biden, do you think? So, Jake, uh, President Zelensky just released a pre-recorded statement in which he uh, expressed profound gratitude, not just to the U.S., but to other Western uh, nations for these sanctions. It's no secret that beforehand uh, Ukraine's attitude had sort of been, well, if you're so sure it's going to happen, why don't you go ahead and implement those sanctions now? Why do you wait uh, for Russia to launch an incursion before doing so? But now uh, there's a sense that everyone is really in lockstep uh, and grateful as I mentioned, for that support. The other thing he said in this statement that I thought was interesting was that he is going to go ahead and call up reservists uh, from the military for a sort of designated period of time. This is really the first time we have heard President Volodymyr Zelensky talking about what Ukraine's military response might be to this. And and that's because there is now, uh, after a long time of taking the attitude of keep calm and carry on, there is now a sort of grim, reluctant awareness awareness of the fact that Putin very much has the possibility to launch a further incursion because when they talked about recognizing those two independent breakaway republics or those two breakaway republics as being independent Putin today clarified that he looks at their borders not as being the current front lines, but as being their declared uh, borders, which are actually extending much further into Ukrainian territory, including major cities like Mariupol. Uh, It's a port city of half a million. I've been there. Alex Marquardt, my colleague, has been there. And so there's a real concern, as President Zelensky himself said earlier, that Russia has now created, if you like, a legal pretext or basis to now act in a more aggressive manner and keep pushing in and essentially nibbling around the edges uh, of Ukrainian territory. That's right. And, and Jill, senior administration officials uh, just told me a few minutes ago um, that Putin going to the parliament, the Duma, asking for, quote unquote, permission, although he gets whatever he wants, to use Russian forces outside of Russia, that that's a major development in their thinking for today's sanction. You've covered Putin and Russia for years. How big a deal do you think that was? Oh, I think it is a big deal. There's no question, Jake. And it's kind of all part of, you know, what has been happening over the past couple of days, which is really almost like theater unrolling. 
number one, of course, recognizing those breakaway regions. And then today, the parliament, pictures all over TV, voting uh, to allow, give the green light to President Putin to order, deploy troops to those regions. And I think what the other step in that drama is uh, what Clarissa was just talking about, extending the boundaries, because those rebels actually claim a lot more territory than they control. And that raises a whole lot of other issues. And then the other thing is just kind of this feeling of almost inevitable rolling through, you know, President the Kremlin tonight saying, uh, we didn't have time to watch President Biden and his speech because we had a working meeting. And there is kind of this, uh, this mood coming from the Kremlin that we are just moving ahead regardless of what anybody thinks. Larissa Ward in Kiev, Ukraine, Jill Doherty in Moscow. Thank you so much to both of you here to discuss Democratic Congresswoman Alyssa Slotkin of Michigan. She's on the Armed Services Committee and the Homeland Security Committee. She's a former CIA analyst. Thank you so much for being here, Congresswoman. Sure. Appreciate it. So senior administration officials just told me that obviously Russian troops uh, have been in separatist parts of, of Donbass for much of the past eight years. Doing so openly uh, is just taking off the mask. They said to them, uh, to the Biden administration, the real crossing of the line was Putin suggesting that the entirety of the Donbass region, even only a third is controlled by separatists, the entirety uh, are independent states. That means two-thirds of this part uh, of Ukraine, controlled by Ukraine, Russia's basically seizing. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a fundamental difference. But then when you pair it with the speech that Putin gave yesterday, I think it's hard to ignore that we're in a very different phase. We've been in a slow rolling move towards this for a long time. Now we're here. And I think the important thing is the entire world is watching how we react. So I think what happened today was a positive step. All these different countries announcing their initial sanctions it can't be the end of it. It has to be the beginning. And I think that what, pe- what we can control is our response to it, not what Putin decides to do. Do you think President Biden went far enough with the sanctions he just announced? Or should the U.S. really just go all in with all the sanctions, uh, crippling sanctions, devastating sanctions, uh, as many would like him to do. Well, I hope today was just an opening salvo. And I think that it was. I think he even said that. I think we need to see what happens in the next couple of days. We need the British to do more. We need the Germans to do more. For our end, though, I think, you know, the most important thing, I think about all the other countries, particularly a place like China that's watching what's going on right now, we have to show a swift response in order to make sure that any would-be autocrat doesn't think that they can just take territory from a neighboring country and think that the world community is not going to respond. So there's a lot watching right now, a lot at stake. Does the fact that this happened suggest that those who have been calling for sanctions before today, uh, Congressman Mike McCall, the the ranking Republican uh, on um, foreign affairs, et cetera, uh, were right that that Biden should have put tough sanctions into place months ago? I mean, I think Putin knows, he knows from 2014 that we were going to come back with a strong set of sanctions, stronger than 2014, and he's built in enough reserves to account for that, that he accepted. And so I don't know that putting in sanctions ahead of an invasion would have mattered. I was one of those people who was saying we should have had a stronger hand before to try and deter him. But honestly, I mean, the amount of intelligence that this administration has declassified As a CIA officer, I will tell you it's unprecedented. And it was all to deter him from doing what he did yesterday and today. And it doesn't work. The man has a different calculus and a different view of the world. Well, that's the thing. He doesn't look at the world the way that a a Western leader looks, right? I mean, he declared in 2005, Putin, uh, that the biggest geopolitical catastrophe in history was the um, dissolution of the Soviet Union. 
Right. Uh, in 2007, he made it clear that he viewed NATO uh, as a, the aggressor. Right. I mean, this has been coming for a long time, right? Yeah, he has a very different view of, of events. Um, and for me, it's all about undoing who won the Cold War. He just doesn't accept that the United States won. He doesn't accept that the role of the world, um, for the role of, of Russia in the world is not as prominent as it used to be. Look, we've all been talking about him for a month straight, right? He has gotten everyone's attention by being a bad actor, and he loves that. He enjoys having all these folks come to his capital and, and court him. Um, but I, I think it's because, frankly, he has to show his strength in front of his people. It's the only thing he has. Their economy certainly isn't anything other than the oil sector. So, But he just has a different orientation, and we need to think about that when we try to react in the next few days. If you could put your CIA hat on, if you have it somewhere, uh, as a former analyst, what signs are you looking for to determine whether or not Putin is actually going to do a full-scale invasion, seizing the entirety of Ukraine, including the capital of Kiev. Yeah, well, we've been watching his military activities, and it's not just the placement of troops. It's also, obviously, aircraft, but things like field hospitals, blood supplies, you know, things that would indicate that he's going to be in for a much bigger invasion. Um, We obviously have a good beat on the intelligence uh, that's coming out of the Kremlin, uh, military communications, those kinds of things. So we're going to be watching those. Um, I I mean, with 130,000 troops surrounding the country, you have to assume that he's going to do something more than what he's been doing the the last couple of days. Um, But I also watch our response, right? NATO is moving uh, forces into the Baltic states and putting planes up in the air. We're moving 1,000 troops, moving folks from Italy. So it's watching how they respond in the next couple of days. Nobody wants nuclear powers to be in close contact with each other in such a sensitive region of the world. You're running for re-election. What do you say uh, to the members of your congressional district that say, who cares? This is thousands of miles away. It doesn't affect me. Yeah. Well, first of all, I think we're going to see with what Russia has done, the price of gas, unfortunately, go up. And in a district where people drive 40 miles one way to work, you better believe the price of gas is already really a pain for them a major pain. But then secondly, look, it's not just about Russia and Ukraine, right? We have a lot of Ukrainian Americans in Michigan, but the big game for us is China. And if they see the world community with a limp response to uh, what Russia is doing, we shouldn't be surprised when the Chinese do the same thing with Taiwan, when they try to cut off our access and turn us from a global power to a continental power. And I know that people in my district do not want to see their kids working for Chinese companies instead of American companies. They want us to be able to maintain a strong role in the world, a strong competitive role. And I think they see this as an opportunity to say to not just the Russians, but the Chinese, that we're not going to accept them just rewriting the next century. Congresswoman Alyssa Slotkin, thank you so much for being here. Really appreciate it. Coming up, we take a look at what the Russian moves actually mean for the borders on the ground in Ukraine. Then a COVID milestone that is good news, but there is also growing concern about the long-term health impacts for people who had it. Stay with us. And our world lead, President Joe Biden, is calling Russian President Vladimir Putin's latest move in eastern Ukraine the beginning of an invasion, setting off a series of sanctions and condemnation from the international community. At issue are two areas in the Donbass region of Ukraine. That's the striped portion there that you see is controlled by pro-Russian separatists and has had substantial backing from Moscow for years. But the separatists are claiming, and Putin is recognizing, all of Ukraine's eastern Donetsk and Luhansk regions as their territory, even though Ukraine and the rest of the world sees that area as Ukrainian, and Ukraine controls two-thirds of it. And now, as CNN's Alex Marquardt reports from Zaporizhia, Ukraine, officials are, are warning 
a further invasion into the two-thirds of the Donbass region controlled by Ukraine, that could still be underway. The Kremlin is calling them peacekeepers, but that isn't convincing anyone that the Russian troops being ordered into the breakaway regions of eastern Ukraine couldn't soon do more. Putin today didn't say when the troops would be deployed, but the head of NATO said a further invasion is underway. Russia has been present in different covert operations in Donetsk and Luhansk uh, for many, many years. What we see now is additional Russian forces and troops moving in. Um, and uh, and uh, this makes the whole situation even more serious. The Kremlin's recognition of the territories adds up to what could be, with Crimea, essentially a land grab of 7% of Ukrainian territory. Vladimir Putin's long revisionist, angry rant on Monday hardly mentioned the Donbass region, but it certainly mentioned Ukraine. Ukraine has never had a consistent tradition of being a true nation. As a result, few think his campaign stops here. More than 150,000 Russian troops and a modern arsenal of weaponry still surround Ukraine on three sides. To the north, in Belarus, the Russian presence is apparently open-ended. There are fears also for Ukraine's southern coast on the Sea of Azov, thought to be a potential target for Putin to further connect illegally seized Crimea to Russia. They want to cut off more of the Azov Sea. Strategically, that's important for Russia, uh, as well as it is this this romantic notion of Putin's that uh, Ukraine is a is really a Russian state and it should have been all along. And in eastern Ukraine, that front line of the past eight years has now suddenly changed, posing new dangers. A meandering, unmarked, unrecognized frontier, the prospect of Ukrainian troops a few hundred meters from Russian troops. The rebel enclaves that Moscow recognized are just one-third of the provinces that they're in, but Putin today said they believe the so-called republics can claim the rest of the land. An issue, he said, that will be worked out in talks between Kyiv and the Kremlin-backed separatists. Just last week, they said they were withdrawing troops. Turns out they weren't. They said they wouldn't. Putin last week said he wouldn't recognize these breakaway republics because it would violate the Minsk Accords. He recognized the breakaway republics. Some observers believe the Kremlin may even have much of eastern Ukraine in its sights, coming all the way here to the Dnieper River, which divides west and east Ukraine. It's one of the few natural barriers in what is a largely flat country. With his announcement, Putin has essentially abandoned the Minsk Agreement, a peace treaty that neither side respected, which at least was meant to keep heavy weapons well back from the front line. Some officials and experts fear that Putin's next move could be fast and heavy. Others believe it will be incremental and gradual, either way designed to weaken the Kyiv government and expand Russia's reach. And Jake, Moscow has been trying to get Kyiv to negotiate with those pro-Russian separatists for years. Uh, Putin appears to believe that the threat of his Russian forces on Donbass, uh, on the Donbass territory, will get President Zelensky 
to the table. Meanwhile, we have just heard from President Zelensky saying that in light of this Russian threat that he will be calling up reservists. He said that for now there is no need for a more general mobilization. And he has continued, Jake, to downplay the Russian threat, saying just today that he does not believe that there will be an all-out war, that there will be no Russian escalation. Of course, Jake, his allies strongly disagree. Alex Marquardt in eastern Ukraine, thanks so much. Let's talk about this with CNN's counterterrorism analyst Bill Mudd, who's a former counterterrorism uh, officer for the CIA and the FBI, as well as with CNN's national security analyst Beth Sanner, who served as the deputy director of national intelligence. And Phil, uh, you just heard Alex say that some experts think Putin's next move militarily could be fast and heavy. Others say it's more likely to be incremental and gradual. What do you think? Boy, I'm going to lay some money on the table. I'd go with the second incremental and gradual. I wouldn't put a lot of money on it, though I'm a better. And the reason is pretty simple. Putin's already had an opportunity to do this. He's had forces massed for some time. So, of course, you have to ask yourself the question, why hasn't he moved? The only answer I can come up with, Jake, is that he's getting what he wants already. That is the warning to the West, the Europeans and the Americans, not to keep moving NATO east and not to absorb Georgia has been heard loud and clear in, in countries like Germany and the United States. Any American president who contemplates expanding NATO into Ukraine knows the consequences. Is that enough for Putin? I don't know. But I think at least he's got to be thinking that he's making gains already without going into deeper into Ukraine, Jake. Beth, take a listen to the NATO Secretary General today who said that a further invasion is already underway. Every indication uh, is that uh, Russia continues to plan for a full-scale attack on uh, Ukraine. Uh, we see the ongoing military build-up. They promised to step back, but they had continued to step up. We see that more and more of the forces are moving out of the camps and are in combat formations and ready to strike. So we're also hearing this from officials in the Biden administration. How does the intelligence community make such an assessment? Is it solely based on satellite imagery showing troop movement? No, it's not. Um, it's a combination of things. So one of the things that I'm looking at is not just that um, the troops are, are in combat formation, which, which means which actually is really important because they can't stay out of the camps indefinitely. But I'm also looking at things like tomorrow is the Defenders of the Fatherland Day in Moscow. We haven't really talked about that, but that's like Veterans Day on steroids in Russia. Um, today is the anniversary of the what Putin calls a coup when his pro-Russian president in Ukraine fled the country. Uh, it's what Ukrainians call liberation. So there's a lot of context that we always will look at when we're considering, you know, when to do something. And I would just add to that, um, you know, taking the Donbass, even the extended portion of it, I do not believe is enough. It is not about just NATO membership. It is about creating a vassal state. And so he has to bring down the government and um, he has to do a lot more. So I don't know whether it will be incremental or fast, but there's more to come. And, and Phil, um, Moscow said it would send what they're calling peacekeepers, uh, I suspect ironically, to these two separatist control regions. So far, there is not much of a sign of them, we're, we're told. How does one go about tracking their movement? Is that also basically done with, with satellite imagery or is it human intelligence? 
Oh, heck no. There's a lot of pieces you're going to look at here. This, you mentioned satellite imagery, which has gotten a lot better over the years. You're also tracking communications. You don't have to read communications, Jake, to body them to know, are they increasing in intensity? Are they increasing in urgency? you got to assume as well that we have a good partnership with the Ukrainians on the ground and the security service and the military. There's a lot of cross communication with people in the occupied zones. What are they getting in terms of communications? What are family members saying? So I think there's a lot of information you can get beyond what you can see in the newspapers. That is satellite imagery on the ground. There's a ton of stuff. And Beth, we're learning this morning that U.S. special forces have left Ukraine. They were in the country uh, training their Ukrainian counterparts, but their last mission, we're told, was escorting U.S. embassy personnel to Poland last night. Um, do you suspect, however, that there's still other special operative or intelligence operatives in Ukraine right now, U.S. ones? I have no idea. Um, honestly, I have no idea. <laughs> Phil, this morning, Putin berated the head of Russia's foreign intelligence. Yes on that. That's how I took it, too. Phil, um, this morning, Putin berated the head of Russia's foreign intelligence service. He did this in front of cameras. Uh, he seemed to be hesitating, uh, the head of the intelligence service, over the matter of whether uh, the separatist-led regions and the Donbass in general should be incorporated into Russia. Take a, take a listen. I would agree that our Western partners can be given one last chance. Otherwise, we must make the decision we are talking about today. What do you mean, otherwise? Do you propose to start the negotiation process? Uh, no, I... Or recognize the sovereignty of the republics? I... I... Say it plainly. I, I'll support the proposal on recognition. You will support or you support? Speak directly, Sergei Evgenievich. I support the proposal to... Just say it, yes or no. So I am saying I support the proposal to admit the Donetsk and Luhansk people's republics into the Russian Federation. <laughs> We're not talking about it. We're not discussing it. We're talking about recognizing their independence or not. Yes, I support the proposal to recognize independence. I mean, this is like something out of a James Bond movie. Phil, what did, what did you make of the exchange? I think it's important for, for Americans to understand how profound this is for the Russians. This is not a foreign policy issue. This is how Russians identify themselves in the failure over the, over the decline of the Soviet Union. They watched the, the United States own them for 30 years. They watched the, as... Uh, the security board with the United States, European allies moved toward Moscow and Vladimir Putin, a KGB officer, has said no more. That interview tells you all you need to know. This is not going to happen anymore in terms of the decline of the Soviet Union. And we are back. Don't oppose me. I thought it was really interesting. Beth, what did you think? I think it also shows I agree with everything Phil said, as usual. Um, but I think it shows how Putin runs everything. I mean, there is no independent intelligence service in, in Moscow, in Russia. These people are not giving him good information. They are giving him, as you saw, exactly what he wants to hear. And that's a very dangerous place for us because, uh, you know, Putin doesn't really know probably what's going on in the ground. There could be quite a bit of miscalculation as a result of this. Thanks to both of you. Appreciate it. We're going to squeeze in a, a quick break. Uh, if you're already seeing soaring gas prices, brace yourself how Putin's invasion could pump up prices at the pump even more. Stay with us. Welcome back. Any moment, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken and the Foreign Minister of Ukraine are expected to 
address reporters at the U.S. State Department. CNN's Kylie Atwood is live for us there. Kylie, what, what are we expecting to hear from these two top diplomats? Well, listen, the main question that we are still searching for an answer to is, will Secretary of State Tony Blinken be meeting with his Russian counterpart, Foreign Minister Lavrov, later this week? That is a meeting that was scheduled to take place on Thursday. But we heard U.S. officials say that if there was an invasion, that wouldn't take place. And of course, today we've heard from uh, top Biden administration officials, including the president himself, saying that an invasion has begun. So theoretically, that should indicate that this meeting is off. But they haven't officially said that. They have not officially, as far as we know yet, canceled that meeting. So we're waiting for an answer to that. Significantly, President Biden said in his remarks earlier that he still hopes that diplomacy can go on here. But he also made it very clear that the Biden administration has shifted its approach here. It is implementing these costs that it has promised on Russia, these sanctions going after Russian sovereign debt, going after some Russian elites and the like. And they're also holding on to other options to crank up those costs. So we're seeing a pivot away from diplomacy and towards the implementation of costs. But we're waiting to see what Secretary Blinken says about that meeting. Uh, the Russian, excuse me, the Ukrainian foreign minister also met earlier today with the defense secretary, Lloyd Austin. He met at the White House with President Biden. So he has been all around town, making it very clear from the Biden administration's standpoint that they stand next to the Ukrainians. Despite, of course, uh, what is happening in Ukraine, they still believe uh, that the Ukrainians are our closest ally and they are going to stand uh, with them. So a question here also to watch is what the Ukrainian foreign minister says uh, in this press conference, we know that they have been uh, assured to see the forceful statements that we have heard from President Biden today. Um, he came out and he was very clear in saying that a Russian invasion has begun into Ukraine. Right. Now, of course, uh, Russian troops have been in the separatist controlled parts of Donbass for the last eight years, the, the Biden administration just, just thinks what happened today is just basically taking the mask off and acknowledging it. Uh, the Biden administration, or at least two officials uh, that, that I spoke with earlier today, they say the, 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 the real difference is Putin uh, declaring these two independent states, the entirety of Donbass, not just the one third of it com, uh, controlled by the Russian-backed separatists. That's what they considered to be the, the line that he crossed, Right. Yeah, they believe that that was significant. He also, of course, of course, authorized Russian troops uh, to activate outside of the country, not just in uh, potentially, you know, those separatist areas, but beyond that. And so that is really viewed as the green light here. Um, U.S. officials knew that Russia could uh, potentially declare those eastern Ukraine regions as uh, independent. But they, what they are looking for, as you say, Jake, uh, is for the Russians to likely go further. And we have heard uh, from President Biden earlier today that Russia is clearly prepared to do so. He was saying that you don't put uh, blood on the borders of Ukraine unless you're planning uh, to really go in. So we've heard U.S. officials explain that they do expect a full invasion is going to happen and they want Ukraine to be prepared for that. The question now is, what is the diplomatic out 
if there is one? Is there a, a Hail Mary that the United States can throw at Russia, or do they feel they've put all their cards on the table diplomatically? We're still waiting for the Ukrainian foreign minister and U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken to come out and, and address uh, reporters at the State Department. Uh, President Biden earlier today announced economic sanctions against Russia. The sanctions against Russia target two of Russia's main financial institutions, as well as Russian elites and their family members who are close to the Kremlin. President Biden saying he's also moving to cut Russia's government off from Western financing. I want to bring in CNN's Nick Robertson in Moscow. And, and Nick, we know Russia has been preparing for tough economic sanctions, building up a reserve uh, of cash. So how much will today's announcement actually hurt Putin? Um, in the short term, it seems to be something that he can withstand. You know, ever since he invaded Ukraine back in 2014, annexed Crimea, and then within uh, less than a year, he started facing U.S. sanctions, European Union sanctions, other sanctions. He recognized that um, he needed to build this rainy day fund and really accelerated it in 2017, 18, 19. Um, he's estimated to have about $680 billion in that fund at the moment. Central Bank today they said that they could uh, protect uh, the country from some of the sanctions that they that they knew would be coming. The targeting of, of those oligarchs that are very close to President Putin, you know, that's certainly one way to try to get the message to him. But Putin very much seems to be the sort of guy uh, who's really put his name, his persona, his vision um, on what he wants to achieve in Ukraine. And he's quite happy to see, you know, friends fall by the wayside. Look at the way that he dealt with some of his security officials just yesterday, uh, dressing them down. Um, imagine you're an oligarch that goes to Putin and says, you know, my kids are getting kicked out of school in the UK. I can't go to London and, and eat at the fancy restaurants. You've you got to help me out here. Back off on what you're trying to achieve in Ukraine. It's President Putin who's been on national TV uh, with his vision of the future, with his vision of Ukraine as part of Russia. Um, it's hard to see Putin really taking the pain of uh, some oligarchs who he can hand out some cash to to get them out of some plights. Uh, it, but it's hard to see him taking their pain and translating that into, into backing down. Of course, there are some oligarchs that help shelter a lot of his cash around the world. But he has, it's a, a estimated, built up vast, vast financial reserves in Russia as well. It's unlikely that he's going to feel uh, personally the touch of the sanctions. The key is, can it cripple the country so much in the future? And that seems to be a very, very slow burn. And we're not anywhere close to it from what we've heard so far, Jake. And, and Nick, uh, we're waiting to hear if the meeting for Thursday between U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken and the Russian Foreign Minister, Sergei Lavrov, if that is still on. Uh, it seems quite possible that Blinken will announce at this press conference we're waiting for uh, that he is not going to participate. Do you think Putin cares? You know, I, I think we kind of got an answer to this, uh, certainly, if not over the weekend, really earlier on today. The, the French prime minister said, you know, Emmanuel Macron had engaged in these in this sort of last minute uh, diplomacy to try to find a way out of, you know, getting Putin to stop before he started, you know, taking these initial moves of, of recognizing the, the, these uh, these separatists in, in Donbass. Um, and the French prime minister today, well, he said, well, essentially, you know, Macron didn't really achieve much of what he set out to achieve. 
Let's go back to the weekend. What did Putin say about those phone calls? He said, you know, Macron called me and said, you should take a meeting with President Biden. And, and I said to Macron, this was Putin speaking, I said to Macron, so what are you going to give me? What's on the table? What's President Biden going to give me? Uh, and, 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 and Putin answered the question by saying, Macron couldn't tell me. Uh, he said that, you know, maybe this was something that could be worked out between Sergei Lavrov and uh, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken. But, I, you know, I think what we're seeing here is that anything that could have been put on the table in those last ditch conversations over the weekend um, wasn't even there. There's, there's nothing really that, that would seem to be available to build a narrative, a diplomatic off-ramp narrative around. Uh, you know, Putin today has, has killed off the mince torts. He said that they're dead. Um, the, the chance of diplomacy at the moment doesn't seem to be within reach. And that's a very sad and, and desperate state of affairs to be in. And I think we're in that phase where it's talk for the sake of talking, if you can talk. But I don't think that, that there's a comprehensive idea of what it is can now bridge, bridge this gap. Yeah, I don't really see much of an off-ramp existing. Here's the Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, as well as the Ukrainian Foreign Minister. They're at the U.S. State Department. Let's listen in. Good afternoon, everyone. Since uh, Foreign Minister Kaleva and I uh, were in Munich just a few days ago, Russia's aggression toward Ukraine and its rejection of international law and diplomacy have accelerated. Yesterday, President Putin recognized the so-called independence of the Donetsk and Luhansk regions of Ukraine, where violent Russian-backed separatists have been fighting a war since 2014. A few hours later, he gave authorization to Russian troops to enter those regions. For weeks, we've been warning the world that Russia was mobilizing for military aggression against Ukraine. We've made clear that if Russia invaded, the United States and our allies and partners would impose swift and severe consequences. Now that Russia has moved uh, against Ukraine, so too have we moved on our strong and unified response. This afternoon, the President announced the first round of sanctions on Russia in response to its actions. These have been closely coordinated with our allies and partners. We'll continue to escalate our sanctions if Russia escalates its aggression toward Ukraine. Today, we're implementing full blocking sanctions on two large Russian financial institutions, VEB and Promise Bank, both of which have close links to the Kremlin and the Russian military. Collectively, they hold more than $80 billion in assets. These measures will freeze their assets in the United States, prohibit American individuals or businesses from doing any transactions with them, shut them out of the global financial system, and foreclose access to the U.S. dollar. We're expanding our existing sanctions on Russian sovereign debt. We've already prohibited U.S. financial institutions from trading in Russian sovereign debt in the primary market. Now, we're extending that prohibition to the secondary market. These prohibitions will cut off the Russian government from a key avenue by which it raises capital to fund its priorities and will increase future financing costs. They also deny Russia access to key U.S. markets and investors. Starting today, we'll impose sanctions on members of the Russian elite and their family members, all of whom directly benefit from their connections with the Kremlin. Other Russian elites and their family members are on notice that additional actions could be taken against them. 
These steps are in addition to the executive order President Biden issued yesterday to prohibit new investment, trade, and financing by Americans to, from, and in the so-called DNR and LNR regions. And, just as the President said we would do, today the Department of Defense announced that we would be sending additional forces to NATO's eastern flank to deter and defend against any Russian aggression directed at our allies. We also made clear that if Russia invaded uh, Ukraine, we would act with Germany to ensure that the Nord Stream 2 pipeline does not move forward. Today, Chancellor Schultz announced that the German government is suspending that pipeline indefinitely. We've been in close consultation with Germany throughout this process. We welcome this swift and decisive action. And we're executing a plan in close coordination with allies and partners to secure the stability of global energy supplies, which is in all of our interests. The United States and our allies and partners are united in the face of Russian aggression. This morning, the European Union and the United Kingdom announced a series of strong, complementary actions. President Putin's deeply disturbing speech yesterday and his statements today made clear to the world how he views Ukraine, not as a sovereign nation with the right to territorial integrity and independence, but rather as a creation of Russia and therefore subordinate to Russia. It's a completely false assertion that ignores history, international law, and the tens of millions of patriotic Ukrainians who are proud citizens of a free and independent Ukraine. Now that we've heard it directly from President Putin himself, it confirms what we've been saying, that he did not send more than 150,000 troops to the Ukrainian border because of benign military exercises, or to respond to threatened aggression from Ukraine, or to stop a fabricated genocide by Ukraine, or any other manufactured reason. His plan all along has been to invade Ukraine, to control Ukraine and its people, to destroy Ukraine's democracy, which offers a stark contrast to the autocracy that he leads, to reclaim Ukraine as a part of Russia. That's why this is the greatest threat to security in Europe since World War II. Ukraine is in danger. President Putin is blatantly and violently breaking the laws and principles that have kept the peace across Europe and around the world for decades. Yesterday, uh, at an emergency session of the UN Security Council requested by Ukraine, the United States and many other countries condemned Russia's renewed attack on Ukraine's sovereignty and territorial integrity as a violation of international law and the United Nations Charter. U.S. Ambassador Linda Thomas-Greenfield underscored that President Putin has now torn to shreds the Minsk agreements, which sought to end the conflict in the Donbass region of Ukraine peacefully through diplomacy. President Putin himself essentially declared those agreements null and void. The complete abdication of Russia's commitments under the Minsk agreements is just the latest demonstration of Russia's hypocrisy when it comes to the agreements that it claims to seek and to uphold. Since the beginning of this Russian manufactured crisis, Moscow has insisted that only legally binding agreements could satisfy its security concerns. But the Minsk agreements now join a long line of agreements many legally binding, that President Putin has broken. These include the Helsinki Final Act, in which all OSCE countries, including Russia, pledge to respect national sovereignty and territorial integrity and refrain from the threat of the use of force. The Charter of Paris, which further established countries' responsibilities to honor those pledges. The Conventional Armed Forces in Europe Treaty, which limits the deployment of military equipment in Europe. The Vienna Document, in which all OSCE countries 
including Russia, agreed to confidence and security building measures to increase transparency and predictability about their military activities. And of course, the Budapest Memorandum, in which Russia promised to respect Ukraine's independence and sovereignty in its 1994 borders and refrain from using force against Ukraine. In the past 24 hours alone, with his actions toward Ukraine, President Putin has violated all of these agreements. He is undoing more than 30 years' worth of painstaking diplomacy by Russia and the countries and institutions of Europe and the North Atlantic region to preserve stability and security for the sake of hundreds of millions of our citizens. Every time Russia breaks one of these agreements, it not only endangers the countries that it's threatening at the time, but nations everywhere that have been made safer and more secure by the international rules-based order. Last week, I agreed to meet Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov this week, on February 24th, to discuss our country's respective concerns about European security, but only if Russia did not invade Ukraine. Now that we see the invasion is beginning, and Russia has made clear its wholesale rejection uh, of diplomacy, uh, it does not make sense to go forward with that meeting at this time. I consulted with our allies and partners. All agree. Uh, and today I sent uh, Foreign Minister Lavrov a letter informing him of this. The United States and I personally remain committed to diplomacy if Russia is prepared to take demonstrable steps to provide the international community with any degree of confidence that it's serious about de-escalating and finding a diplomatic solution. We will proceed in coordination with allies and partners based on Russia's actions and the facts on the ground. But we will not allow Russia to claim the pretense of diplomacy at the same time it accelerates its march down the path of conflict and war. There is no question what has happened here. We've all seen how Russia has relentlessly mobilized for war despite intensive efforts by others, including the United States, to engage them on a diplomatic path. We've seen through their false flags, we've predicted their lies. In the hours and days ahead, any further escalatory steps by Russia will be met with further swift and severe measures, coordinated with allies and partners, on top of those announced today. We'll continue to stand with our allies and partners to support Ukraine as it faces Russia's threats with courage and strength. And we'll continue to defend the international laws that keep every country in the world safe from the kind of aggression that Russia is now inflicting upon Ukraine. Dimitro. I'm grateful to Secretary Blinken for welcoming me in D.C. today. We, I think we spoke, this is our third or fourth encounter in the last four days, and uh, this speaks for the dynamics and the quality of our relationship, but also for the urgency of the current crisis that needs to be handled. We meet at a very tense and responsible time for Ukraine, for the United States, and for the world. We all are at a critical juncture for the security of Europe, as well as international peace and security more broadly. Russian aggression has brought the world to the edge of the largest catastrophe since World War II. Yesterday, President Putin moved to recognize two pieces of Ukrainian land as independent entities. Ukraine does not and will never recognize this absurdity. Neither will the world recognize it. In fact, what Putin recognized is not the so-called 
Donetsk People's Republic and Lugansk People's Republic. He recognized his direct responsibility for the war against Ukraine and an unprovoked and unjustified war on another sovereign state in Europe, which Russia now intensifies. President Putin killed Minsk agreements. And more broadly, he attacked the world order. Needless to say, Russia's move is a grave breach of international law and a new act of aggression against Ukraine's sovereignty and territorial integrity. Therefore, Ukraine strongly believes that the time for sanctions is now. And in this context, we welcome today's announcement of sanctions by President Biden. The world must respond with all its economic might to punish Russia for the crimes it has already committed and ahead of the crimes it plans to commit. Hit Russia's economy now and hit it hard. I commend immense efforts of the U.S. diplomacy, led by Tony, to mobilize the global coalition of allies and partners to stop Russia. The entire world stands today with Ukraine, and rightly so. Putin wants much more than a war-torn piece of Ukrainian land and people living there. What stops him is only our unity and resolve, and we can still stop him. Ukraine continues the engagement with the United States, EU, and NATO in diplomatic efforts to ease tensions. Yet, we also stand ready for any possible development. We had a focused discussion today with Secretary Blinken on steps to protect Ukraine and our multidimensional resilience. One of the proposals that we put forward today is designing a program similar to the land lease implemented during the World War II to support uh, the war efforts of the Allies in, Eastern, in, East, in, in Europe. This program will help to ensure sustainable sustainability and will improve efficiency in, uh, the, uh, in strengthening the capacity of Ukraine to defend itself. The last point that I would like to make uh, today we discussed some very specific ideas and uh, we appreciate very concrete steps made by the United States. These days we receive uh, uh, proposals from some countries to condemn uh, Russia's behavior, to condemn but not follow the condemnation with action. And I would like to say that condemnations are important, but it's actions that really matter now, these days. And I'm grateful to our strategic partner, the United States, for its ironclad support, including military, economic, and political, diplomatic assistance provided to Ukraine. The Ukrainian people will surely remember the United States standing with Ukraine at this decisive moment in history. Thank you. We'll now turn to questions, and we'll take two from each delegation. Uh, we'll start with Vivian Salama of the Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much. Um, Mr. Secretary, President Biden said three days ago that if Russia invades 
they will have chosen war and the door to diplomacy will be closed. Today, however, he seemed to have left the door open for diplomacy despite labeling what Russia has done as an invasion. And so even though you've now canceled your meeting with uh, Minister Lavrov, can you say what the circumstances would entail to justify talks at this point, absent, say, a full withdrawal? Um, does the actions in Donbass kind of open the door for potential negotiations? And on that point, if you would both indulge me with two questions, um, President Putin today also said that the crisis could be resolved if Kiev promised to abandon future efforts to join NATO. And so that's been a non-starter for the West. So what needs to happen then for any of these talks to actually be entertained? Um, Minister Kaleba, good to see you again. Uh, question, quick questions for you. Um, does the Ukrainian government have any plans to evacuate Mariupol or Kharkiv in, in the coming days, just given the events that we're, we've seen in Donbass? And uh, secondly, the United States has informed the United Nations of, a credible, of credible information showing that Moscow has compiled a list of Ukrainians to be killed or sent to camps following a military occupation. Were you informed of this list, your government? Was it informed of this list? And have any actions been taken uh, to respond to it? Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I'm happy to start. Uh, first, um, the further renewed Russian uh, invasion of Ukraine that has now begun um, means uh, clearly that the, the, the idea of having uh, a meeting this week with Foreign Minister Lavrov to pursue diplomacy, diplomacy now rejected uh, by Russia, uh, does not make sense. Uh, but having said that, to the extent there is anything that we can do to avert uh, an even worse case scenario, an all-out assault on all of Ukraine, including its capital, uh, that would inflict horrific costs on uh, the Ukrainian people, uh, we will always uh, pursue that. So we, our partners, uh, remain open to diplomacy, but Moscow needs to demonstrate that it's serious. The last 24 hours has demonstrated just the opposite. Um, it hasn't been serious to date, including with regard to the meeting that was planned for Thursday. We made clear that in the context of uh, a Russian invasion, uh, we would not go forward with that meeting. If Moscow's approach changes, we remain, I remain very much prepared to engage. Um, with regard to uh, President Putin's statement about um, uh, NATO and uh, uh, the open door, it's very clear what we've seen uh, in the last 24 hours that uh, this has never been about uh, Ukraine and NATO, per se. Uh, what President Putin has made clear is that this is about the total subjugation of, uh, of Ukraine uh, to Russia. Uh, it's about reconstituting uh, the Russian Empire, or short of that, a sphere of influence, uh, or short of that, the uh, total neutrality of countries surrounding uh, Russia. And so uh, the issue of uh, Ukraine and NATO has really been uh, an argument, an excuse uh, to mask the fact that uh, what this is about is uh, President Putin's view that Ukraine is not a sovereign country, that it does not have a, an existence or independence, uh, not uh, associated in some fashion with Russia, a proposition that we not only firmly reject, but so does virtually every Ukrainian. I can only reiterate uh, what 
the Secretary just said on NATO. NATO is a choice of the people of Ukraine. No one but Ukraine and NATO will decide on the future of our relationship. And uh, uh, it has never been about NATO for Putin. Putin is just an excuse. Even if, even if we do nothing, President Putin will find a reason to accuse us of doing something. <clears throat> Regarding our plans to evacuate Mariupol or Kharkiv, uh, no, we do not have such plans. We have two plans. Plan A is to utilize every tool of diplomacy to deter Russia and prevent further escalation. And if that fails, plan B is to fight for every inch of our land and every city and every village. Uh, the, uh, to fight until we win, of course. And about the list of extermination, uh, no, we haven't received it uh, officially. Um, but I wouldn't exclude that such a list can exist. We'll turn to Olga Koshalinko from OnePlus One Media. Uh, good afternoon, Mr. Secretary of State. Uh, from your perspective, is Budapest Memorandum rather alive or dead? And uh, do the United States recognize any legal obligations under it? And quick follow-up to Mr. Kuleba. What actions do you expect from partners to be taken under Budapest? Thank you. Well, in effect, um, Russia began to tear up the Budapest Memorandum in 2014 when it seized Crimea uh, and went into the Donbass, uh, leading, uh, backing, financing, supporting uh, the separatists and waging war uh, in the Donbass. I think what we've seen in the last 24 hours is the further repudiation of Budapest by Russia. For our part, uh, we have worked very hard over many years and especially uh, over the last year to do everything we can to support Ukraine, to support its territorial integrity, its sovereignty, its independence through security assistance uh, in the last year alone more than in any uh, previous year, uh, humanitarian assistance, financial assistance. Um, just uh, about 10 days ago, uh, we provided an additional loan guarantee of a billion dollars to Ukraine. And of course, leading uh, the effort internationally to build support for Ukraine in this hour uh, of need. So we stand very much behind uh, that, that support, support expressed in the Budapest Memorandum and doing everything that we can to uphold uh, Ukraine's independence, uh, its security, its well-being. Um, <clears throat> Budapest Memorandum is not a collective defense treaty. So the truth is that never no one promised us they would fight for us if we are attacked. This is not the subject matter of the Budapest Memorandum. But this document was concluded uh, on the premise that, first, countries who provided security assurances to Ukraine will themselves not use force against us. And second, if that happens, they will do their utmost to stop it. So this is exactly the, should be the subject of the, of the consultations that Ukraine has initiated recently. Countries who uh, belong to this legal and political field space created by the Budapest Memorandum have to come together 
and uh, reach an agreement on which specific action can they take to uh, protect Ukraine. We understand that one of the signatories of the Budapest Memorandum is Russia, who, as Secretary Blinken rightly said, violated all possible uh, international documents and agreements. But this does not waive other countries of their responsibilities to do their best uh, in order to help Ukraine. Ukraine is a country that exists in a security vacuum. This is truth. Our security guarantees are Ukrainian army and Ukrainian diplomacy. But uh, we, we realize that. But we do believe that <clears throat> the decisions taken in 1994, when the memorandum was, uh, Budapest memorandum was concluded, they should be respected because we sacrificed a lot to um, to make a long story short, we did a lot to strengthen global security by abandoning our nuclear arsenal. That was a huge contribution. And we expect, on the principle of reciprocity, an equally huge contribution to ensuring Ukraine's security. Ben Hall, Fox News. Thank you. Uh, Thank you very much both for this today. Um, Foreign Minister, there is a suggestion that what we've seen so far is a minor invasion, that there's more to come, and so it only warrants sort of lesser U.S. sanctions. I, I wonder if that is your read as well. And also, you and President Zelensky called for tough sanctions to be placed on Russia before the invasion. You said this would happen. If not, it has happened. Are you happy with that in mind, with the way the U.S. has handled this? What more would you like to see from the U.S. and from the international community to try and deter more aggression? And uh, Secretary Blinken, thank you. Um, Given that Russia has invaded Ukraine, regardless of all the threats of harsh sanctions, the, the attempts at diplomacy, what makes you think that continuing down the same path is going to deter them any further? Do you think it's time to change tact? Do you think diplomacy has failed? And secondly, have you underestimated Putin? Uh, First, there is no such thing as minor, middle, or uh, major invasion. Invasion is an invasion. Uh, Second, as I said uh, earlier, we do appreciate today's, the sanctions which were announced today. They target Russia. They're very specific. They are painful. I can say, frankly, that yesterday when we learned about the first executive order to impose sanctions on related to economic activities in the Donetsk, uh, with Donetsk and Lugansk, we were puzzled because we saw how the site that thought recognition from Russia is being punished, but we didn't see how Russia, who granted its recognition, is punished. But we saw it today. And this strategy of uh, imposing sanctions by waves, if I may put it this way, is something that, uh, that can work uh, if it continues in a very sustain- in a sustainable way. President Putin should not have a single minute when he starts to think that this is the threshold, this is the, the ceiling, the, the, the pressure reached its ceiling, and he will not be punished anymore. This pressure should continue to be uh, stepped up. And uh, if that involves 
regular issuance of uh, uh, executive orders on new sanctions, we will be more than happy to see, to see that. I will repeat again. We can, despite the horrific address by President Putin, where he basically challenged the very or rejected, he didn't challenge it, he rejected the very existence of the Ukrainian state, we can still stop him. If we act in a very resolved way and keep mounting pressure on him. The question is that he has a certain table on his mind, which I'm not aware of, but I'm sure he has it. And we should also understand that every next decision should be taken in a swift action. And we saw two executive orders issued by the president, by President Biden, within what less than 24 hours. Uh, this may be the dynamics that will have to be uh, upheld if Russia continues to escalate. And it was encouraging to hear from Secretary a very simple sentence: "If Russia escalates, the United States and partners will escalate sanctions." This is exactly the rule that has to be followed. And yes, we did believe that it would be helpful for some of sanctions, not all of sanctions, but some of sanctions to be imposed before the invasion begins as a preemptive measure uh, for what Russia had done before. But this question becomes obsolete now. And uh, we have to focus on a different strategy, the one that I just described. Uh Ben, it's hard for me to improve much on uh, my friend Dimitro's answer. I'll just add a couple of things. Um, first, all along we said that we were pursuing uh, two tracks, uh, a track of diplomacy and dialogue uh, to try to uh, persuade Russia not to engage in renewed aggression uh, against Ukraine, and at the same time, a track where we were building up deterrence, building up defense, and building uh, a response that would have massive consequences. Uh, for Russia. Uh, Russia has clearly chosen to reject diplomacy and dialogue uh, and instead to pursue uh, aggression. As a consequence, uh, we have uh, started to pursue uh, the severe consequences that we've made clear would follow uh, from any renewed Russian aggression. Today, faced with the beginning of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, we started high and will stay high. Um, the sanctions that we've already announced go well beyond what we did in, in 2014. Full blocking sanctions against two of Russia's largest financial institutions, VEB and the, the military bank. These institutions hold more than $80 billion uh, in assets. They provide key services that are critical to financing uh, the Kremlin and Russian military. Uh, we have comprehensive sanctions against Russian sovereign debt. What that means is that we're cutting off the Russian government from Western financing. Sanctions on elites and family members uh, and as promised, as we said all along, Germany taking action uh, on Nord Stream 2. And to repeat what Dimitra just emphasized, we've also made clear, we're making clear today, that if Russia continues to escalate, so will we. Um, and of course, it's not only uh, the sanctions and other measures uh, of that, uh, that nature that are being taken. It is, as we've made clear, the reinforcement of NATO on its eastern flank and continuing to provide and indeed increase the support that we're providing to Ukraine against uh, every dimension, uh, security, uh, diplomatic, political, economic, uh, humanitarian. All of that 
um, uh, is in the mix. Ultimately, um, President Putin makes whatever decisions uh, he makes. Uh, we, do, we can do everything uh, in our uh, power to try to shape those decisions. But as I've said all along, whatever his decisions, we're prepared either way, and we've demonstrated that again today in full coordination with allies and partners. Oh, I think to the contrary. Um, we've not underestimated him. We've actually laid out for the world uh, his entire playbook, a playbook that he is now following and is making uh, very clear that, for example, what uh, the President's laid out, what I laid out at the United Nations a week ago, is exactly uh, what's happening. So we've had a very clear-eyed view of President Putin all along. We'll take a final question from Dmitry Anapchenko from InterTV. Mr. Blinken, um, I'm interested in your opinion about Normandy format. Um, after all what happened in Ukraine last night, I may one tell that uh, it will not work anymore and should be replaced like Ukraine proposed. And secondly, I got a question which may sound very naive, but it's a question of my audience in Ukraine, millions of people who are really scared. Mm -hmm. And if any one of them will be on my place, they will ask you, if Russian troops will move forward, or if they will start uh, intense artillery fire hitting um, uh, Ukrainian territory, uh, on your understanding, what will happen next and uh, what will America do? Thank you. Um, with regard to the, uh, the Normandy format, I think the, the, the question is best directed at, uh, at President Putin, um, as far as we can see by the actions that he's uh, taken. Uh, he's rejected it. Uh, and he's torn up, in effect, the Minsk agreements, which the Normandy format was designed uh, to advance. So if uh, Russia is at all serious about resolving uh, the conflict that it created uh, in the Donbass, pursuant to the agreements it's, it signed, the Minsk agreements, uh, it's, of course, showing exactly the opposite. So the question is really for President Putin. We've supported the, uh, uh, the Normandy format uh, all along with France, Germany, Ukraine, uh, and Russia uh, working to implement uh, the agreements. And throughout, Ukraine has worked very hard to make good on its commitments. Russia has done just the opposite. But what we've seen now uh, in the last 24 hours would seem to be the final repudiation of, uh, of Minsk uh, by Russia. Uh, but again, you would have to ask uh, uh, President Putin. Um, with regard to to what comes next, as I said a moment ago. And as we said all along, uh, if Russia pursues its aggression uh, against Ukraine, uh, it will face the massive consequences that not only the United States, but virtually all of our allies and partners have made clear uh, would follow. Uh, you've heard this from the G7, the leading democratic economies in the world. You've heard it from the European Union. Uh, you've heard it uh, from NATO. And that includes uh, what we've started with today, and that is very severe economic and financial sanctions that will exact uh, significant costs from Russia. Uh, it includes a reinforcement uh, of NATO uh, and uh, the defense of all allies uh, in NATO, and it includes uh, additional assistance to Ukraine uh, in every area, uh, security, uh, diplomatic, uh, political, economic, humanitarian. All of that will follow. And again, I repeat what I've said uh, before, if, uh, if and as Russia escalates, so will we. Thank you, Mr. Secretary. Thank you, Mr. Minister. Thank you, everyone.
Thank We've you. been listening to the U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken speaking at the State Department where he announced he has canceled his meeting that had been scheduled for Thursday with, <clears throat> with Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov. Blinken had previously conditioned that summit on Russia not invading Ukraine. We were also listening to the Ukrainian Foreign Minister Dmitry Kuleba, who, who called for more sanctions to punish Russia for its actions in the past, its actions present, and its actions in the future. Uh, let's check in with CNN's Kylie Atwood live at the State Department. Uh, Kylie, it does seem like the, the headline from this uh, briefing is Secretary Blinken announcing that he has formally canceled his meeting uh, with Lavrov, don't you think? Yeah, very clearly the Secretary of State saying that he is no longer planning to meet with the Russian foreign minister later this week because the Russian invasion into Ukraine has begun and because that signals a whole-scale rejection of diplomacy by Russia. So indicating that he has no plans any longer to go to Geneva on Thursday, as was previously scheduled, to meet the Russian foreign minister. He let the Russian foreign minister know that those were the sentiments of the United States, that it doesn't make sense to meet at this time in a letter. He also said that he has the backing of U.S. allies and partners who all agreed that that meeting shouldn't happen. Uh, Also significantly, the Secretary of State talking about the sanctions that the United States has laid out today. And we heard from the Ukrainian foreign minister welcoming those sanctions, saying that they are painful. And as you said, Jake, we have previously heard from the Ukrainians calling for more sanctions. But today he did say that he welcomed the sanctions that have been put into place. And this idea of waves of sanctions can work if they continue to up the ante in following developments, more sanctions to come. Yeah, and, and maybe I'm reading between the lines too much, but it did, it did seem to me, Kylie, that the Ukrainian foreign minister, Kulyeva, uh, while saying that he appreciated the sanctions and certainly not denouncing it, he did seem to suggest that, that he wants as, as many sanctions as possible as quickly as possible. Take a listen. Therefore, Ukraine strongly believes that the time for sanctions is now. And in this context, we welcome today's announcement of sanctions by President Biden. The world must respond with all its economic might to punish Russia for the crimes it has already committed and ahead of the crimes it plans to commit. Hit Russia's economy now and hit it hard. Yeah, so the world must respond with all its economic might uh, for plans already committed and plans Russia will commit. So this does appear to be someplace where where Ukraine wants the West, the Biden administration and other Western countries to do more. Right. And it's not altogether surprising because this is the messaging that we've been hearing uh, from the Ukrainians for quite some time now. Even before these sanctions were rolled out today, you heard the Ukrainians asking for sanctions to be implemented before any invasion to prevent an invasion. And the position of the Biden administration has been, we need to hold off on those sanctions as a deterrent, as something to prevent the invasion from happening. Now, of course, they're beginning to implement those sanctions. The United States still holding some fuel in the engine here. Uh, but the Ukrainians saying, you got to keep going with these sanctions in order to them, for them to be fully effective. All right, Kylie Atwood at the State Department for us. Thank you so much. President Biden's 
so-called first tranche of sanctions aimed at Russian banks with ties to the military, as well as at Russian elites and their families, otherwise known as Russian oligarchs. This comes as Russian military vehicles have been seen inside Ukraine's Donbass region. As CNN's Matthew Chance reports for us from Kyiv, Ukraine, Russian leaders are also reacting to news of U.S. and European sanctions with a threat of their own. Disturbing movements in Donbass. The rebel areas of Ukraine now recognized by Russia as independent states, and where Russian forces have been ordered to maintain peace. It's still unclear if fresh Russian hardware has moved in. But unmarked military vehicles, including these tanks and armored personnel carriers, have been spotted on the outskirts of the main rebel city. If Moscow has ordered in more troops, it will be seen as yet another hostile act. Already there's been strong condemnation by the US president of Russia's recognition of the two Ukrainian rebel areas, the Biden administration issuing new economic sanctions on Moscow. Who in the Lord's name does Putin think gives him the right to declare new so-called countries on territory that belong to his neighbors? This is a flagrant violation of international law and it demands a firm response from the international community. The self-styled People's Republics of Donetsk and Luhansk, both backed by Moscow, were born out of the bitter fighting of Ukraine's brutal war. Problem is, they control a much smaller area of Donbass than they claim. Ukrainian cities like Krematorsk and Mariupol are run by the Ukrainian government, but are located in territory the separatists say is theirs. The concern is the newly recognized and emboldened republics backed by Russian forces could launch a new offensive to capture more land, especially now their Kremlin sponsor says he supports all their territorial claims. The best solution for our colleagues in Western countries not to lose face would be if the current Kyiv authorities refuse to join NATO and essentially maintain neutrality. But with tens of thousands of Russian forces still poised near Ukraine's borders, like these observed by CNN, there's little sign of that compromise being made. Already, the US, several of its allies have imposed new sanctions on Russia, notably Germany, putting on hold the Kremlin-backed Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline. The decision to suspend this strategically important project, which would massively boost supplies of Russian energy to Europe, has drawn immediate scorn from Moscow. Welcome to the brave new world, tweeted a former Russian president and close Putin ally, where Europeans will very soon pay thousands of dollars for their gas. A snarky reminder that sanctions can cut both ways. But as President Biden says, freedom comes at a cost. For the US and its allies, the focus now is simply trying to stop Russia in its tracks. Well, Jake, tonight the Ukrainian president has made a national address in which he welcomed the tough sanctions that have been posed on Russia by the United States and other Western powers. He also said the country was focused on diplomacy and praised Turkey's efforts to bring Ukraine and Russia together for talks. But there was also an ominous announcement as well as he called up uh, reservists in the country for more military training in the face of what is now a growing and very real Russian threat.
Jake. All right, CNN's Matthew Chance, live for us in Kiev, Ukraine. Thank you so much. Let's get right to CNN senior international correspondent Fred Pleitkin, who's live for us uh, from the Russian side of the Ukrainian border. Fred, you and your team have spotted a, a large number of Russian military vehicles close to the border with Ukraine. Does that mean, in, in your view, that a larger offensive is likely? Hmm. Well, I'm not sure whether it's likely, Jake, but it certainly seems as though it's something that could happen uh, at any time. Certainly the Russian forces that we saw uh, in the field today in and around the Rostov area, which actually borders uh, the Donbass, there were a lot of them and they certainly appeared to be battle ready from what we could see. What we saw in the field there is we saw lots of columns of personnel carriers, lots of soldiers also who were inside those personnel carriers, really at times uh, dozens of vehicles that were parked uh, behind each other. But we also saw some pretty heavy armor as well, including infantry fighting vehicles and self-propelled artillery and also heavy battle tanks as well. And, you know, one, Jake, one of the things that the, the U.S. has been saying is they're saying that these forces have been changing their posture. They've been changing the way that they have been deployed. They were on bases for a very long time, but now they're actually in the field. They're not, uh, for instance, loaded on the back of trucks, but they have the soldiers in them and they really appear ready to go. And that's exactly also what we saw close to that border area uh, with Ukraine and with the Donbass as well. It's also an area, Jake, that at this point in time is very, very tense. There's sort of a bit of a buffer zone, about 25 kilometers uh, from the border, where we weren't allowed to take our cameras out. And the moment that we went in there, we were immediately checked by the border guards and told in no uncertain terms that we were not allowed to take our camera out at all. So a very tense situation, and certainly one where we saw a Russian army in the field that appeared to be ready to go at any time, Jake. And Fred, the NATO Secretary General spoke today uh, about Russia moving more forces into these contested regions of Ukraine, the Donbass region. Do we know how many Russian forces are already in the Donbass region? And have any of them crossed into the two-thirds of the Donbass that is still controlled by Ukraine, not by separatists? Mm. Well, there doesn't seem to be any evidence that any have uh, crossed into that area that's controlled by Ukraine. However, from what we heard from people that we spoke to on the ground, there certainly does appear at least to be instances where there could be Russian forces that have already gone into the Donbass area, despite the fact that Vladimir Putin seemed to say in his press conference today that that had not happened yet. But people that we spoke to on the ground there said that what we saw today, uh, the amount of military that we saw on the ground, there was much more uh, in that area just a couple of days ago. And the folks who live around that area, who are there every day, say they believe some of those troops have already passed into Donbass. It's circumstantial, but it certainly is uh, the vibe that you're getting on the ground there from people when you speak to them, Jake. All right, CNN's Fred Pleitkin is live in Russia for us near the Ukrainian border. Thanks so much. I want to bring in CNN's Caitlin Collins at the White House and Nick Robertson in Moscow. And Caitlin, the, the Secretary of State Blinken, he just announced he's no longer going to be meeting this week with the Russian Foreign Minister, Sergei Lavrov. What is the message that the Biden White House hopes that this will send? Well, I think when they agreed to that meeting and they set it up, they were very clear that it was dependent on a Russian invasion not happening yet. So, of course, based on the standards that they have set for themselves, it would be very difficult, I think, for Secretary Blinken to move forward with that meeting since they had said this isn't something that's going to happen. And now they're saying that the Russian invasion has started. That is what President Biden described it as earlier when he came out speaking for the first time since we saw President Putin yesterday recognize these two breakaway Ukrainian regions as, quote, independent. And, of course, after he took that 
actions of asking the Russian parliament to allow him to use Russian forces outside of Russia, therefore upping these fears that there is going to be a full-scale assault. And so I think that is where things stand of where Blinken is saying he doesn't think now is the right time for that meeting to go forward, given the recent actions that the Russians have taken, that the Kremlin has taken. But he's not shutting the door on this entirely. And neither is President Biden, who said earlier he does still believe there is a path forward for diplomacy, though, of course, it is getting a lot harder to see what that looks like, given all along they have said that these meetings and these talks continuing really depend on Russia not taking these aggressive actions. And what President Biden said today is he does still expect Russia to try to take more territory and to continue with the full-scale assault that they have warned about, the one, Jake, that they have said would be, quote, extremely violent. And Nick, uh, the Ukrainian foreign minister, Kulieva, he just said it's time for the world to hit Russia's economy and hit it hard. Um, what is the likely response uh, from Putin to these new sanctions? Well, I think Matthew gave us a little flavor of that from Medvedev saying, you know, welcome to the new uh, world reality, the world order where Europeans are going to have to pay a whole lot more for their gas. Um, we're not hearing tonight uh, from from President Putin has been on TV a lot today, a, a lot yesterday. We may get some readout from his, uh, you know, from his spokesman tomorrow. I think that Putin at the moment is going to feel fairly comfortable with the sanctions that it, that are arrayed against him so far. I, I, one of the sanctions that we understand that's come from the European Union, for example, hits a TV anchor. Another hits a spokeswoman at the uh, the foreign ministry. So you know these some of these lists uh, from from Europe uh, from other places may sound quite expansive. Um, but they're not going to be getting to the people that are going to be directly in, in President Putin's ear. And I think that, you know, and I think that's critical that even those oligarchs who are being targeted, Putin has deep enough pockets to be able to uh, pay off if they're really falling short. But this is his um, this is his idea. It's his name. It's his face. It, it, it's, it's him that's at stake, if you will. His vision that is laid out so strongly on television here. He's been in power for 20 years. He's going to be in power for another 14 years. This is his legacy. He can afford to see some of his close allies fall by the wayside. He can afford, um, on the surface of it, to, to see the economy and the country suffer a little to get this gain that is going after. I, I don't think at the moment he's going to feel hard hit. I thought I was very very interested by another point that um, that the Ukrainian foreign minister made, and that was in reference to the, you know, to the Budapest Agreement in 1994. It was an amazing thing at the end of the Soviet Union, with Russia, with so many Soviet nukes all over the all over the Soviet Union. That countries like Ukraine that had hosted some of those Soviet nukes gave them up on the agreement that Russia and those other countries would recognize and protect their sovereignty and protect them in the future. And he said that was a big thing for Ukraine to do. They stepped up to help the world. And now he really hopes the world is going to continue to step up and help Ukraine. That was that was quite a significant statement that he made, Jake. Thanks to both of you. Appreciate it. Let's talk about all of this with the former director of national intelligence under President Obama, James Clapper. Director uh, Clapper, the uh, Ukrainian foreign minister, uh, Kuleba, uh, said that he wanted the world to respond with all its economic might. Um, these sanctions are not that. Uh, do you think Biden needs to do more? Well, I, uh, 
I think what the administration is trying to do is is to have uh, exquisite gradations of, uh, if I can use that phrase, of the sanctions. So they want to hold some in reserve, assuming, which I think is a sound assumption, that Russia is going to do more. I, I don't think they're going to stop with just uh, the uh, rump people's republics in the Donbass. So uh, you can make an argument. It's kind of a religious one that you should, you know, whack them with all you got right at the outset or do it in a more gradual uh, staging. And there are arguments for both. And the administration, I think, is going with, with the latter approach. Separatists have had control uh, over, we're going to show the Donbass region right now, over the striped area of Ukraine uh, for years. It's about a third of the Donbass region uh, with the backing of the Kremlin. Just behind those striped areas, the other two-thirds of the Donbass region is controlled by the Ukrainian government. Putin, however, is declaring the entire Donbass independent. He went to the Duma to get permission for Russian troops to operate outside the country, presumably in there. Do you think Biden's announcement of sanctions today will stop Putin from this very first step in annexing the entire Donbass? Uh, probably not. Uh, I, I think what he's trying to do is a tit for tat here. Uh, and I think the the initial tranche of sanctions, and I, I don't know, I certainly don't have the laundry list of, what, of, of what's potentially available, <clears throat> but that first tranche was designed for a specific uh, set of circumstances. And I think the assumption is that um, the, they're making the assumption of, of Russian claim to all the Donbass not just the part that's not the parts nominally controlled uh, by the uh, rebels. So you were the director of national intelligence when Russia last annexed part of Ukraine in Crimea in 2014. Take us inside the White House. What kind of information is Biden being presented with right now? What does he need to consider? I'm sure some people are saying uh, that there should be much stricter, much harsher sanctions. Others are are talking about the I forget what you called an exquisite gradation or whatever. What is it like? What does Biden need to consider here? Well, I think the first uh, you brought up 2014, and it, there's a good com- there's a comparison to be made here. The Russians in 2014 were a lot more subtle. You know, the little green men they already had 10,000 naval entry, infantry, their nominal analog to the Marine Corps in the Crimea, and they also already control the port complexes there. I think what's the difference is in eight years, uh, Putin clearly is a lot more emboldened than he was eight years ago, and we have a lot better intelligence. And one one aspect of this is, you know, what should the DNI be feeding, uh, uh, supplying in the way of information to the president, which I think she's doing, is much more exquisite intelligence it's much better, and also using it in an information uh, a warfare context, which we really weren't into eight years ago. In 2014, I had Bush's national security advisor, uh, Stephen Hadley, on the show, uh, and he said that he wished, in retrospect, that, that Bush had uh, in, invoked much stronger, or any sanctions against Russia for seizing parts of Georgia, the country of Georgia, in 2008, I now ask you, do you wish that Obama had done harsher, stricter sanctions uh, in 2014? Uh, yes, I do. I wish we, as an administration, ha- had uh, been more aggressive in, in 2014. 
All right. Director James Clapper, good to see you as always. Thank you so much, sir. Coming up, they've won four World Cups, and now the women's national soccer team can add a $24 million victory to their trophy case. Stay with us. Our sports lead now in perhaps one of their toughest matchups yet. U.S. women's national soccer team members have won a $24 million settlement in their lawsuit against U.S. soccer, the organization that runs the sport in the U.S., in which they demanded equal pay. It is a major win for the World Cup champs, and as CNN's Alexandra Field reports for us now, the women who poured blood, sweat, and tears into the lawsuit do not plan to pocket all the money. For world champions, another decisive and historic victory, a $24 million settlement that aims to right wrongs and forge a new future for women's soccer. Hopefully this will be a day we look back on in uh, in a number of years and we're a little bit older um, and say that's the moment that everything changed. The end of a six-year-long legal battle pitting the four-time World Cup winning U.S. women's national team members against U.S. soccer, coming with the sport's governing body saying it has committed to providing an equal rate of pay going forward for the women's and men's national teams. That includes lucrative World Cup bonuses. It is a huge win for us, for women's sports, for women in general, um, and it's a moment that we can all celebrate right now. The justice comes in the next generation, never having to go through what we went through. It's, it's equal yes. pay across the board from here on out. The star players of women's soccer remaining undeterred through their years-long plight. Really, it's going to be like for all these little kids that are coming up now. $2 million of the settlement will go to funding for women's and girls' soccer programs and players' post-career goals. The majority of the money, $22 million, is made up of back pay to players named in the suit, an indirect admission from U.S. soccer of the history of unequal pay. We still have a lot of work to do with mm-hmm. repairing the relationship with our players, um, but we're on the road to that. U.S. soccer at one point defended unequal pay, pointing to the larger audiences for men's games and suggesting a higher level of skill and commitment from male players. This as the women's team has won four Olympic gold medals and four World Cups since 1991. The men's team has never won any. In 2020, a judge ruled against the women in a lawsuit alleging unequal pay, saying the women played more matches and made more money than their male counterparts. A ruling described then as defying reality by a team that filed an appeal and has now earned another win. And Jake, this historic settlement won't be finalized until a new collective bargaining agreement is ratified. While U.S. soccer is committed to equalizing prize money going forward, there are still vast disparities in how FIFA, the world's governing soccer body, awards prize money for men's and women's tournaments. Alexander Field, thanks so much for joining us now to discuss. Carrie Champion, she's a sports broadcaster and the new co-host of CNN Plus's new show, Carrie and Jamel Speak Easy, which debuts this spring. Uh, Carrie, welcome to the CNN family. Um, we just heard Alex is reporting on the $24 million settlement. Taking a step back, what do you think this means for women's sports in general? 
Well, this is a huge win, and I I can't underscore the importance of them battling for six years and refusing to be deterred even when they lost in 2020. What you have to understand is, is that the women's soccer team, they know that they're very popular. They know that they are fan favorites, and they work really hard. And that is the case for so many sports, professional sports for women. You look at the WNBA, you look at women's tennis, and I highlight women's tennis specifically, Jake, because women's tennis is arguably the only sport where there is some sort of pay equity. Um, And that has a lot to do with Billie Jean King, my mentor. Uh, The Battle of the Sexes, I'm sure you're familiar with it. That has been a fight that has been going on for decades, and they're still not quite there, but almost. In fact, tennis players get paid just as much as male tennis players, and that was the only sport until recently. So we look at what these women have put up with and how they've sacrificed. And unfortunately, we have to get to the point where we start acknowledging that they have the same skills set. Women have the same skill set. In WNBA, we watch these women play and they play with all their heart and they're told, guess what? You can only make $30,000 a year. While we see these astronomical contracts contracts for these other players, the male players will get, NBA players get up to $200 million. And yeah. so for what happens today, what we're looking at today is a watershed moment for women's sports. And we can definitely see this moving in favor of pay equity. And I'm really happy. I celebrated this win with these women. To, to, um, I, I do wonder, what, what do you think the ripple effects of this settlement could be? Do, do you think WNBA contracts are going to change, for example, to match NBA contracts? They have to because these companies are saying that we support women, big companies, corporations, and I can name a ton of corporations that have gotten behind the WNBA in theory, but now they're going to ask for money. They're going to say, give me this money that you say that you want to make sure that we are paid the same as our male counterparts. It will be a long time before we can see uh, women making up to $200 million in terms of contracts. But if we get behind them and support them and we stay, what I like to say, stay diligent to the course is what these women did in soccer, we'll see the difference. For instance, I can give you an example of the highest paid contract for WNBA. You look at a player now and they, arguably the highest paid contract is $150,000. Most of these women, Jake, then have to go play overseas when their season is over to make perhaps maybe a million dollars. And while that sounds like a lot, imagine working, you know, 10 months out of the year with very little time off. And it's unfair. It's, it's essentially saying what you do doesn't matter. So today, this win today, $24 million. And moving forward, these women will be paid equity in terms of what their male counterparts make. This is going to be huge. And we're going to see other leagues, specifically the WNBA, say we have to get on board. We can't continue this way and we can't let these women look as if they're not being paid for their hard work as well. Let me ask you a question to play devil's advocate here. I could see the argument that the women's soccer team is more popular and more successful than the men's soccer team. I could see the argument that the the Williams sisters, for example, are just as popular, if not more, uh, than the average male tennis player. I don't know that you can make that same argument when it comes to the NBA versus the WNBA. How do you respond to that? Jake, that's fair. That's a very fair argument. And that is because, and I'm putting the NBA on the hot seat right now, they need to start, they as well, the institution needs to start backing these women. They need to put sponsorship dollars behind these women's games. They need to put marketing dollars behind the women's game. And they can do that. The WNBA started some 20 odd years ago. We're on our 26th year. It started from nothing. And this year, we're finally starting to see progress. We're starting to see people pay attention to them. But that is only because the NBA decided to make 
a commitment to them. And if everyone got involved, there would not be this laissez-faire approach towards the WNBA. In fact, you're correct. That is an argument that has been made, but I do believe if you put money in something and invest in something, you'll see the end result. All right, Carrie Champion, good to see you. Thank you so much. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. And we're back with our world lead, President Biden, announcing a series of new new sanctions against Russia today. Secretary of State Antony Blinken said moments ago that the sanctions will increase if Russian President Vladimir Putin continues his invasion of Ukraine. Joining us now to discuss is Ukrainian Foreign Minister Dmitry Kulyeba, who who just met with Secretary of State Blinken and with President Biden. Thank you so much for joining us uh, today. I understand your country is in a a difficult time right now. I couldn't help but notice that you called on the world to exert its, all of its economic might to punish Russia for actions in the past and actions in the future. Um, I know you're happy about the sanctions that were imposed today against the two banks and against some oligarchs, but that is not all of the world's economic might. Is it fair to say you want more and you want more as soon as possible in terms of sanctions? Absolutely. No sanctions will be enough until Russian boots withdraw from Ukrainian soil. This is fundamental principle that we have to keep putting pressure on Russia. And uh, we in Ukraine proceed from the fact that the sanctions announced today by President Biden is just the beginning of the process of deterring President Putin and making him withdraw. That's why I said in the press conference that we like what we saw today, but it certainly won't be enough. And this strategy has to be continued. I mean, you like what you saw today, but do you think today's uh, sanctions will, will deter Putin from doing anything, from entering uh, Ukrainian-controlled parts of the Donbass territory, from, from staging any other inter- uh, invasion of Ukraine? Will, will it stop him from doing anything at all? President Putin questioned the resolve and the ability of the West to impose sanctions uh, on him. His view, according to how we understand it, was that the West is talking the talk but it's not walking the walk. So today's sanctions are important as a message that it's real, it's happening, and there will be more of them. And it's not only the United States who, to, who imposed sanctions on Russia today. It was also the European Union, the United Kingdom. And that's why we're talking about a broad international coalition that is focused on deterring Putin. I don't know what is on his mind and wh- how he will act overnight. But uh, it's important that he saw the readiness to adopt decisions swiftly and the decisions which inflict damage on him. What's the next line that if he crosses, there need to be more heavily imposed sanctions? Is it uh, Russian troops crossing from the separatist controlled parts of the Donbass into the Ukrainian controlled parts of the Donbass? Is that the next line you anticipate he'll cross? That is definitely uh, one of the lines, uh, but uh, we should be aware of the simple fact this is a hybrid warfare. Russia can attack physically, but also Russia can attack us in cyberspace, for example. So we are in a dialogue with partners, including the United States, about the identification of these red lines, which, uh, which will be responded uh, with sanctions. But again, uh, I want to make it clear that we, uh, we have to be ready to act in a very swift manner, because the situation can change literally every hour. Do you think that Biden, President Biden, should have imposed these sanctions weeks, if not months ago? Well, this uh, was a position of Ukraine until literally yesterday uh, that uh, 
it, there were good legitimate reasons to impose sanctions on Russia for what it had done before and for its recent escalation. However, after yes, since yesterday, this question becomes obsolete because the invasion began, the sanctions were imposed, the first sanctions of a broader package uh, of sanctions prepared were imposed. So we have to be focused on today instead of analyzing tomorrow. You said, today, you said today that you believe Putin can be stopped, and you also said that your preference is that it be done with, with diplomacy. Um, do you disagree with Secretary of State Blinken canceling his visit with the Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov, because that would have been a diplomatic effort? Well, as far as I understand, uh, Secretary Blinken canceled the visit, but he did not cancel diplomacy. He expressed his readiness to re-engage with Minister Lavrov. And it was always about uh, actually seeing... Uh, or prompting uh, Russia into a more constructive behavior as well. As well, we cannot base diplomacy on uh, only on our constructive gesture, whether they come from Ukraine or from the United States. Russia also has to demonstrate a constructive attitude and to make step in our direction, not by sending troops, but by sending diplomats. What do you think Putin's ultimate ambitions are? Do you think he's going to try to seize the entire country? Do you think he's going to attack Kiev? Uh, his ultimate goal is to destroy Ukraine. He's not interested in parts of Ukraine. He is not interested in uh, even in keeping the entire country under his control. He wants the idea of the Ukrainian statehood to fail. This is his objective. Do you think he wants to absorb all of Ukraine into the Russian <clears throat> Federation? Well, uh, I do not want to focus on hypothetical scenarios of what his eventual plan be. But what I know for certain, and this was uh, eloquently proved, regretfully, uh, in his address yesterday, is that he hates Ukrainian statehood. He believes that Ukraine has no right to exist. Many Americans might be watching this interview right now, and they might be wondering, why should the United States care? This is thousands of miles away. Ukraine is not a NATO uh, ally, uh, even if you want to be. Um, what's your message to them? What, what's your message to the Americans who wonder what's, what's the interest of the American people in this fight? Three points. First, in 1994, Ukraine abandoned its nuclear arsenal, which was the third in size in the world. The United States, Russia, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, and Ukraine. This was the three top countries uh, possessing nuclear arsenal. We abandoned it in return for security guarantees issued in particular by the United States. So we uh, were promised that if anyone attacks us, the United States would be among countries who will be helping us. Second, what is happening in Ukraine is not only about Ukraine. President Putin challenges Euro-Atlantic order, and if the West fails in Ukraine, the next target of Putin will be one of the NATO members on its eastern flank. And third, if Putin succeeds in Ukraine, other players across the globe who want to change rules, who want to bypass the United States, they will see that this is possible, that, the West, that the West is incapable of defending what it stands for. So I think all in all, the uh, U.S. citizens, Americans, should be interested in keeping the world order as it stands, and the future of this order is being decided right now in Ukraine. Uh, and then lastly, sir, uh, what do you want in the next round of sanctions? We only have a few seconds left, but tell us what you can. You want more oligarchs targeted? You want the entire Russian economy crippled? Yes. 
You can, you can elaborate a little <laughs> bit more than that. Well, uh, the financial world is pretty sophisticated, and we want every instrument available to be used in order to stop Putin. If the price of uh, saving a country is the most, the harshest sanctions possible, then we should go for the harshest sanctions possible. Ukrainian Minister of Foreign Affairs, Dmitry Kuleba, thank you so much. Really appreciate your time. Today we'll be thinking and praying of the people of Ukraine. Our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. I'll see you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.